You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. There was a social psychologist in 1978 by the name of Philip Brickman who conducted an interesting study where he tracked over 50 different lottery winners and paraplegics in order to determine their happiness levels after a life-altering incident. Well, his control group determined that after a relative period of adapting to life, that the happiness levels of nearly all the participants actually returned to normal. The term that was coined out of this particular study was known as the hedonic treadmill. From the term hedonism or hedonistic, the pursuit of pleasure, a self-indulgent lifestyle, it's this never-ending cycle of the pursuit of something that will actually never satisfy our souls. For the majority of the people who either fell into mega millions, everything seemed to return to normal. This is what an earthly mindset will do. You see, pursuing the things of the world will only ever leave us with empty promises. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, the following. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who began or did the most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set out on foot, the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since then that Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Lewis is getting at something significant here. How you view heaven determines how you live today. I would contend that the majority of the people in that particular study had zero shift in their happiness levels because their aim was earthly. The collection of people that Lewis mentioned who changed the world for good had a distinct aim, and that aim was not of this world. These people who lived through unimaginable periods of turmoil and suffering understood something that God wants to remind all of us of today. This world will pass away. Today, I'm asking God for the grace to shift our gaze beyond this world and onto what matters most for 2021, Jesus. So the title of this message today is appropriately, A Heavenly Gaze. You know, the book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. Apostle is just a fancy word for someone who had actually seen the resurrected Christ. He's actually writing to a church he's never met in what is today modern Turkey. So why would Paul, who, mind you, is writing the letter from a prison cell in Rome, the capital of the world, to 
a place that is 1,300 miles away. And that's the equivalent of a trek from here to our capital in D.C. Why would he go through the effort to concern himself with a people he's never met? Well, I have a few thoughts. I think generally speaking, because Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, the same Jesus that spoke to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And if he rose from the dead, then what he said while he walked this earth matters greatly. Now, more specifically, Paul needs to address some theological errors. There's a very influential spiritual figure in the church who's leading people astray. You jump back a chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul addresses this when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive in philosophy or empty deceit. So in the midst of all the turmoil surrounding this church, here's what Paul wants them to know. Christians identify with Jesus through his work, not our efforts. In other words, Christians have a heavenly mindset, not an earthly one. If you would consider yourself this morning to be an outsider looking into this whole faith thing, or perhaps you find yourself in a season of doubt or you're searching for answers about Christianity, maybe you're just in the room today because you're searching for a seed of hope that will carry you into the new year. And if that's you, can I just take a moment and say, I deeply resonate with you. And here's the most important thing, if that's you, that you need to know. Being a follower of Jesus does not begin with something that you do. It begins with something he did. Matter of fact, the author reminds us of this truth in verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, you know, dead men can't bring themselves back to life. One of my favorite analogies uh, is used by Charles Spurgeon, the famed prince of preachers, who actually uses an analogy to talk about what the gospel is not. And in frustration, he says, people try to describe being, being raised with Christ in this way. There's a man in open water and he's drowning. He's gasping for air, begging to be able to breathe. And sure enough, before he sinks, a life raft is tossed to this man. In a desperate attempt, one last grab, he latches a hold of the raft and that raft symbolizes Jesus. And it brings him into the boat and he's rescued because Jesus has saved him. And I love Charles Spurgeon's reaction. He says, this could not be any further from the truth. Because if you walk this analogy out and it's proper understanding, that person, namely you, you died. You actually sank to the depths of the sea and you ceased to breathe. And Jesus, in his abundant mercy, breathed life into your dead bones and brought you back. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. In other words, Jesus initiated this work, not you. That's what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus is to trust his work on your behalf. And when I say trust his work, 
I mean your belief that Jesus left his throne, wrapped himself in human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and climbed on a cross, substituting himself in your place to shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Dying a death he did not deserve, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. And on the third day, he rose again, victorious over sin, victorious over death, and all those who place their faith in him are now resurrected with new life. Hence, being raised with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. In other words, a new union was created. Something new began in our lives, and thus over time, things began to unfold differently. You know, when I was in college... I had much different desires than I do at this point in my life. When I was in college, all I wanted was a loud sound system for my car. I mean, this is what the desires of my heart were longing for. And not just any sound system. I mean one that at midnight would upset baby boomers. Like, that's, that's what I was after, right? I wanted concert tickets, Rap, rock, concert tickets. Because seeing something live is way better than having to experience it on TV. These were the things I was after. But I'm not in college anymore. I'm married. Marriage changes a man. I was, I was at North Park Mall last week. Lord knows why. And I found myself walking into a store called Anthropology. And I got excited about a pillow until I found out it was $118. I mean, I'm wowed in Ikea over a floor lamp. I mean, these are the things in my life now that seem to get me excited. I mean, even my wife, when we were dating, didn't know all the NFL teams, but you can bet after 11 years of marriage, I've trained my wife to know all 32 NFL cities and their mascots, right? But why? Not necessarily because she loves it, but she loves me. You see, the union changes what you see. The union changes what you love. To be raised with Christ means you have a new identity. You have a new freedom. You have a new power. You have new longings. You have new affections. You have a new future. You have a new hope. All because of this new relationship. And this relationship with Christ is foundational to everything else. To be raised with Christ is to be fully dependent on him. That's why Paul writes two chapters earlier. That in him all things hold together. For from him and through him and to him are all things it means my next breath on this stage doesn't happen without his say-so. To be raised with Christ is to experience his power. Well, what kind of power? The kind that raises people from the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. 
To be raised with Christ is to be made new. And Paul says, if you've been raised with him, then he tells the church to seek. The language around the idea of what it means to seek resembles identically Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God. Seeking carries the idea of persisting. It's a verb, and it's actually an imperative. In other words, it's not a suggestion, but a command. And it's found in the, in the present active tense, which means it's not just to seek, but to continually seek. It's an ongoing act that does not go away because you refuse to relent from that act. To seek is to be persistent. I have two daughters who share a room with a new bunk bed that we got six months ago. And the oldest sleeps on top, she's six. The youngest, who's four, sleeps on the bottom. And they always want to sleep on the bottom bunk together. Which fascinates me as to why they wanted a bunk bed in the first place. But they are persistent in that they always want to sleep on the bottom bunk. Boy, in our house, there's a rule. You only get to do that on the weekends. Because during the weekday, you need to be able to have good sleep in your own bed and not stay up till two in the morning laughing about whatever. But, but what I find is, after my six-year-old exhausts herself, persisting to ask if she can sleep on the bottom with her sissy, she sends in the cavalry, her four-year-old sister, who, when she approaches me, begins to walk into the same argument, less articulate version, and I stop her to, for a moment of loving correction to remind her of the rule in our home. And she interrupts me and says, Daddy, I love you. I mean, it's all-out warfare. And after I've exhausted all of the persisting, I think my point has gotten across. Dad's done a good job until five minutes later. I overhear in the bedroom, Mommy, can I sleep on the bottom bunk with Sissy? I mean, just the amount of persistence over time it actually, it stops driving me crazy and it begins to impress. You know, John Piper says, no one gains the mindset of heaven passively. You either seek it or you don't have it. So why do we seek? We seek because of what verse 1 says, because of the resurrection. Paul even said if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is pointless. I mean, Christianity is literally a house of cards. Everything hinges on the resurrection. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection is of first importance. If you disprove it, everything else is meaningless. And so he exhorts us to seek in light of what Christ has done. Well, what are we to seek? He says, seek the things that are above. Paul clarifies what those things are by giving us the first description of what the things above entail. Notice the text says, the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand is positional. It encompasses the rule and reign of Christ. The right hand of God is a place of honor and majesty. The Bible speaks often of 
of Christ's exalted position. In Psalm 110, the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This was a messianic promise that the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Jesus, will be exalted. Jesus declared to the chief priests in Luke chapter 22, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Courts enforce contracts and oaths with the raising of a right hand. Traditional ecclesiology had pastors performing baptisms with the right hand of power to signify the resurrecting power of Christ. Richard Mellick, Bible scholar, says the right hand is a place of power and a position of privilege. Remember Stephen in Acts 7? Just before he became the first martyr when he was stoned to death, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he who was raised to life is now seated at the right hand of God. 1 Peter chapter 3 says that after God made him alive, he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1, the treatise of everything that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets, greater than the, than the entire sacrificial system because he's the sacrificial lamb of God. It says after he provided purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. In Mark chapter 10, remember James and John bringing this audacious request before Jesus that, that they would be able to sit on the right or the left with Jesus in glory. And remember the response of Christ in verse 40 where he says, I don't choose who sits at my right or my left. God chooses the people who will receive these honors. And at the end of time, the Bible says, all people, every eye, will see Jesus in this position. Because in Mark 14, Jesus declares what we will all see one day. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, we are to seek the things that encompass the rule and the reign of Christ. And then he goes on to say, set your minds on things above. But, but notice there's a slight difference between seek and set your minds. You see, the original meaning for the word seek carries with it not just an action. It also has implications of your desires, it's a seeking with eagerness until something is found. Like the woman in Luke chapter 15 who ruthlessly scours through her home searching for the coin to look and find for that which is precious to her. Seeking ties into what you love because it's an orientation of the heart. It revolves around your affections. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, when we become united with Christ, remember, he gives us new desires. He gives us new longings in this new union. 
Focus your hearts on these things. Jeremiah 29, chapter 11. Very well might be one of the most well-known verses in America. If you don't believe me, around the time that students graduate high school, just go walk into Mardell. And every coffee cup and graduation card and apron has Jeremiah 29, 11 plastered on it somewhere. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And we love to cling to these promises of verses like this, but I think we so easily forget the meat of this passage two verses later in verse 13 where God says, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. To set your minds, on the other hand, means to direct one's attention or your thoughts to something. It answers the question, what do we do with our brains? In other words, like, what do you think, what do you think about? You ever, you ever think about that? You ever think about what you think about? I mean, the Bible says we should be thinking about Christ. Like, do you think about heaven? Do you dwell on heavenly things? This is the same Greek phrase Paul uses in Philippians 2, the setting of your minds, where he says in this passage, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what is the mind of Christ? He goes on to explain it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage in Colossians 3 is telling us today that we have to have this mindset, we have to have this attitude, this disposition, this temperament, this way of thinking and feeling and responding in the way that Christ did. Several passages in God's word instruct us to prepare our minds, to love God with our minds, or even to protect our minds. Ephesians chapter 6 says to take up the helmet of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 it says to take every thought captive. 1 Peter chapter 1, prepare your minds for action. See, seeking with your heart and the setting of your minds are used interchangeably throughout Scripture because they're so closely connected. Here's what Paul is saying. Be shaped in your thinking. Be shaped in your emotional life. Be shaped in the pattern of your attitude. Be shaped in your responses. Be shaped in your preferences of people or entertainment. Be shaped in your job. Be shaped in your clothes. Be shaped in your hobbies. It's a total set of your mind and your heart being formed by these daily realities. In other words, let your way of seeing the world, thinking about the world, and feeling about the world be governed by the reality of heavenly things. Seeking after Christ is personal. I mean, it's personal because our relationship with Christ is personal. And after all, he raised us to new life. But while it's 
meant to be personal. It's not meant to be private. You know, my first car was a 96 black Yukon GT, two-door. It was awesome. It was so cool. And and not just because of all these fat mud terrain tires. You know why it was so special? You know why anyone's first car was special? Because it's yours. It belonged to me. I mean, it was mine. I was so excited that sometimes I would drive around by myself just to get out of the house until I had to pay for my gas. But, but driving alone didn't serve much purpose after a while. I mean, it wasn't as enjoyable to share the experience without friends. So I did what any teenager would do. We drove to the Taco Bell parking lot just to hang out, just to look at our cars, just to share in the fact that it was, it was mine. And, and here's the deal. Seeking Christ is personal, but it's not private. There's a difference. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you active in a group? Because I ask you that because God calls us to seek Christ in community. And I don't just mean you're listed on the roster. Like, let me ask you this. Are you active in a group? There's a reason you hear this a lot at Stonegate. We enjoy Jesus together. Look, one-third of our lobby is dedicated to a massive wall with nearly 60 home groups uh, that meet five different nights a week in eight different cities. There's, there's no way you could not leave today and take the next step of faith by trusting God to seek Christ in a community. And there's no better time to do it than today. Men, let me ask you a question. Do you seek Christ with your wife? Or are you complacent in your pursuit of Christ? There's no better time than today to take her hand and begin to seek Christ together. And this hits home for me. It hits home for me because a handful of years ago, I had a lot of men in my life that I love and look up to have to sit down and have a very hard conversation with me. And the conversation went something like this. Jeff, your ministry is more important than your marriage. I would never admit to that. But looking back in my life, formally, I wouldn't say that. But functionally, my life told a different story. It was a hard season in my life because by the grace of God, I was reminded by some of the wedding vows that I wrote Sarah. Where at the end, I said, Sarah, Grace, I promise you will always be my number two. And I wasn't referring to ministry being first. She knew that day, I said, Christ will always be first in our marriage, that together we will seek him. And there was a season of my life where that wasn't true of me. And maybe some of you in this room find yourselves in a similar season. And there's a loving rebuke to be had to take your wife by the hand and begin to seek Christ. Seek Christ in your home. You know, I think so many parents sometimes get things backwards and we can think that, you know, the coach is going to teach my son how to throw a fastball or how to hit a curveball. I'll teach him how to shave and drive a car. His teachers handle the academics and the church will raise him spiritually. That's not the way God intended it. 
That's a drop-off culture that we want to destroy at Stonegate. Because moms and dads have been tasked by God to be the primary disciple makers in your home. What a grace that is. I couldn't think of a better way for for a home to, to seek Christ than to serve together. You know, I've often heard Pastor Rodney say, our church is only as good as the families that make up our church. Do you know what makes a family look really great? When they serve. It's how we resemble Christ. I mean, it's, it's the example we see in John 13 when Jesus leaves the head of the table, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples, which, and then after he's finished, resumes his place at the head of the table, which is such a beautiful picture of what he came to do. He left his throne, wrapped himself in human flesh, and washed us clean by the blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Luke 19 says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. You want your home to look like Christ? Let me encourage you. Take a step of faith today to begin to serve together. And if you're not sure where to do that, let me give you an encouraging boot to the kids' ministry. They could use it. And not just they could use it. There's no people group on earth that are unevangelized like them. They need the gospel. What an opportunity for our homes today. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor and philosopher who is prominently known as one of the greatest Christian theologians of our time, wrote concerning the home these words. Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rule. And family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. If these are duly maintained, all the means of grace will be likely to prosper and be successful. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. He continues, not on things that are below. Jesus echoes this command in John 18 where he declares, my kingdom is not of this world. So we seek the things that are above. But what exactly are the things that are above? Well, Paul begins by telling us what they're not. He says the things above are not the things that are on earth, which begs the question, what are those things? What are those? If you don't get that, it's a Gen Z reference. It means you're a little older. That's okay. But in verse 5, Paul goes on to list the practices of the old self. Here's what those things are. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, obscene talk, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying. These are the things of the earth. We see later in verse 12 the things that we are to seek. He lists these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience, peace, forgiveness, and love. Similarly, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, what kind of things constitute as the things that are above. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Paul says, think about these things. In other words, set your minds on these things. The mind of Christ was always on heavenly things. Matthew 4, when he was tempted, perfectly faithful to the end. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, so intently focused with drops of blood as his sweat, he was fixed on the Father's will, even on the cross. He was concerned with the forgiveness of the criminal next to him. Before he gave his last breath, he looks down at the, the soldiers who put him there and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His kingdom is not of this world. So we seek the things that are above. Psalm 11 says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes where? To the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Revelation chapter 4, the great throne room of heaven. I had to write a 30-page paper on this chapter in my undergrad. 14 years later, I get to finally use what I learned in a one-minute illustration. I'm so excited. This entire chapter revolves around one thing. Ascribing honor and glory to the one who's worthy of it all. Where the full attention of the room is fixated with their gaze on the throne crying out aloud and singing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do not set your minds on the things of the earth. Philippians chapter two says, those who set their minds on earthly things, here's what it says about those people. Their God is their belly. They live in shame and their end is destruction. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be my end. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Paul goes on to write. He says in this passage, for, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He's emphasizing the position of believers in Christ is a place of security. It's a great place to be. Isaiah chapter 49 says that in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And we're secure because he's not just powerful enough to save. He's also powerful enough to sustain. That's why Paul says to the church in Philippians, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, still, nothing on this earth or outside this earth, not even death, will be able to separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Jesus comes back, Revelation chapter 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Everyone will see him. And it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Notice, Christ, who is your life. Christ doesn't just give life. He is life. 
That's why Galatians 2 says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or why Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. Or why Jesus says in John 14, not I give life, I am life. Or why 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the son of life, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let me ask you a question. Do you have life? I don't mean like, are you alive? To echo the words of William Wallace, right? Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. If you do have life, in other words, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, then know this. Know that Christians have a greater destiny than earth. We're to prepare for heaven. And here's how we do that. We seek the things that are above. And one, one practical way that can play out in your life this morning is for you to begin a relationship with Jesus. There's no better time to start that relationship than today. Jesus says today is the day of salvation. Use the next five days as a launching pad into the new year. Determine in those days to think about heaven so much that everything on this earth pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think a next step for some of us in this room would be repentance. I would encourage you to allow the Spirit to take a hard look inward. And if need be, repent from having an orientation that is so earthly focused. Is your mind consumed with the election? Is it all you talk about? Is your family turmoil consuming your thoughts? Are you constantly finding yourself trying to please your parents? Which Galatians 1 even says, if you're trying to please man, you wouldn't be a servant of Christ in the first place. This matters greatly, Stonegate, because union with Christ is a heaven or hell issue. This is a conditional passage. If you've been raised with Christ, notice not everyone is raised with Christ. This matters greatly because Jesus is the center of the gospel, and as a result, he is the result of everlasting life in heaven. If you're going to be excited about heaven, let me tell you something. You better be excited about Jesus. Because heaven would not be heaven without Jesus. The central figure in heaven is the glory and beauty of Christ. And we get to bask in that beauty. And the reason that heaven is not important to some of you is because Jesus is not important to you. I mean, maybe you know about him, but you don't know him. Or maybe you know him, but your affections have waned. Like the church in Ephesus in Revelation, you've forgotten your first love. Heaven is not heaven without Christ. John Piper poses this question in his book, God is the Gospel. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, 
and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied if Christ were not there? And if your answer to that question is not an unequivocal no, I could not be satisfied, then you very well might not be a Christian. Psalm 27 charges the believer to gaze upon the beauty of Christ, to seek his face in his holy temple. The beauty of Christ. This is not a begrudging type of seek. This is not clean my room because I was told to. This is an enjoyment of the most high God. The, this is enjoying his beauty. The joy, the hope, and the life that is Christ, who is your life. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. For those of you who find yourselves continually on that hedonic treadmill, man, I want to invite you into something better this morning. Philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, there's a God-sized slot in each of our hearts. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Choose life in your home, in your marriage, like Joshua. Make this declaration for a new year. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Stonegate, you have nothing better to do in 2021 than to seek Christ. Spend your life with this purpose. Spend your life preparing for eternity. Spend your life storing up treasures not of this world. Spend your life seeking Christ. I want to invite you all across the room just to take a moment and bow your heads with me and close your eyes. As we spend just a few moments in prayer with the king who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, And I just, I just want to encourage you for a moment to gaze at the beauty of Christ. There's so much freedom from taking your eyes off the things of this world. Because when your heart recognizes that all the things of this world will pass away, there's no more freeing place to be than in the Father's love. His deep, everlasting love. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, wait for it, so great is his love for those who seek him 
That love is available to you. Take a moment to inquire of the Holy Spirit what he's asking you to do. And I say that because the kingdom of God is constantly advancing. God's not waiting around. He's moving us forward as a church into a new year together to seek Christ. Ask him what that means for you today. Is it head to the group's wall and get active in a group by giving your life to a community of believers? Is that taking your wife's hand in prayer and committing committing your marriage to Christ? Is that taking your home together to serve the church? Is it to repent of having an orientation that is so earthly focused you've forgotten your first love? Stonegate, let's enjoy them together. Let's seek him because we have nothing better to do. God, thank you. Thank you that you left your throne to perfectly seek after and fulfill the Father's will, to redeem a broken world, to reconcile us to yourself, to pave a way for us to have access to you again. Thank you. God, in your abundant mercy, in your endless grace, would you please this morning in your kindness lead men to repentance. Allow us as a church to fix our gaze heavenly. Allow us to seek the things that are above, not the things that are below. And in so doing, would you allow, allow our hearts to find their rest in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.